0: in the morning, do you know where your thoughts are? If you are like me, they sometimes keep you awake, spinning one negative scenario after another, each one intensifying the facts of my failure to do the right thing at the proper time so as to avoid the pain that is keeping me awake in the first place. One fearful thought leads to another, but none seems to reconcile the problem. At 3 a.m., it is just easier to consider, consider which mistakes are causing the pain rather than to address what to do with the pain now that it's here. To consider my own imperfections, A laundry list that grows exponentially in the wee hours of the morning only serves to exacerbate the pain I'm trying to avoid. This, in turn, produces more anxiety, less sleep, and a truly exaggerated perspective of the hopelessness of ever getting it right. See if this rings true for you. Shortly after my family left rural Nevada and settled in San Francisco in 2006 to begin a new chapter in our lives, the first day of school arrives. The mix of excitement and fear in our household is churning in all of us, the parents being no exception. In our attempt to be good parents, we are careful not to add to our children's anxiety about new beginnings. As former foster kids, they had already been through so many changes. Instead, we tended to focus on what's easiest to control, how each kid is groomed and dressed, that they have the requisite school supplies, and that we get them to the right school at the right time. We never speak of things we could not control or how we feel about our own vulnerability in new and uncertain circumstances. I recall that morning how difficult it was for me as the son of a preacher to begin schools in new locations, first in third grade and then in 10th grade, as my father was called to new ministries about every seven years. To this day, when I step into a room of people who are new to me, I sometimes hesitate momentarily and for a split second consider running in the other direction, (laughs) often not really knowing why. I'm hoping that my children's coping skills are better than mine were at that age. By the end of the school day, the uncontrollable happens. The public school telephones our home to inform us that our six-year-old son, David, is missing first day of school. They tell us he's not on the bus that has already left to take him home. And he's nowhere to be found on school property. Other bus drivers on alternate routes said he's not with them. My husband Stillman leaps to his feet and heads to the school. I stay home and wait by the phone. It's after 3 p.m., not 3 a.m., but the fear I experience has the same effect. First, I try to calm myself down by saying this is all a mistake. I'll hear from Stillman soon and we'll all have a good laugh about this at the dinner table. Then I realized that not only is David missing, he is surely lost. He doesn't know the streets of San Francisco from those of Sesame Street. He may not even realize he is lost. When he does, will he ask for help? What if he asks the wrong person or the wrong kind of person? From there, my fears just fast forward. What if David was kidnapped by someone? Oh, no, the longer he's gone, the worse this is going to be. He's never known cruelty. How will he survive this ordeal? Is he okay now? Then it hits me. How will our family cope? I curse myself for not listening closer to those who warned me that the big city, San Francisco, was no place to raise children. My mind moves from drugs to gangs to child trafficking. Things were so much easier down on the farm in Nevada. Did I just sacrifice one of my own sons to follow my calling? Is this the Holy's way of telling me I've made the wrong move? Wait a minute, now this spinning just keeps continuing. How in the world could I even be called to the ministry in light of what's happening? Sure, I've had doubts from time to time, but this clinches it. And then I do what's very familiar to many. Oh, Holy One, if you'll just bring David back to us, I'll admit that my imperfections make me ill-suited for this line of work. Are you there? Is, is anybody listening? Hello? Then my fearful thoughts take me to the end of the line. God doesn't exist. My entire life is a sham, and I never should have adopted children. <laughs> I am unlovable and unable to love. Fear is the only thing I have left although it's not the only thing I have to fear. In fact, the only thing I have to fear is the failure to grow from what I go through. To do so, I must embrace the pain for which my mind is working overtime to avoid Now, these scenarios that played out in my mind in those anxious hours after the school's initial phone call never came to fruition. What I failed to mention earlier is that Stillman was accompanied to the school by two reporters from the San Francisco Chronicle who happened to be interviewing us at our home when we received the school's call. When Stillman entered the school's office, he was told that they are doing all they can to find David. They seemed initially vague, intentionally vague, about how they were proceeding. Upon seeing cameras and notepads, however, the school quickly dispatched (laughs) its own staff to catch up with the bus drivers who they had not heard from when they had radioed that David was missing. Sure enough, David was found. Some three hours later on the wrong bus, clearly rattled, but completely safe. He arrived at home for dinner, but there was little joking around the table. But he was safe. It was Mark Twain who once observed, I've led a long and troubled life most of which never happened to me. <laughs> this is perhaps the best description of the human condition with regard to the enormous and influential role that fear plays in human life. Now, in my case, none of the fear-based scenarios came true. Neither did they contribute one whit to finding David. Marcus Aurelius advises you can discard most of the junk that clutters your mind, things that exist only there, and clean out space for yourself by comprehending the scale of the world, by contemplating infinite time, by thinking of our birth and death, the infinite time before death, and the equally unbounded time that follows. It's not that we really have nothing to fear. At times everyone feels unsure, unsafe, unprotected, or at risk. In fact, the great twentieth century theologian Paul Tillich says that we that to be aware is to be anxious. To be aware is to be anxious. It is normal to replay in your mind a critical comment someone made about you, or for anger to rise a bit in reaction to someone who seems to dislike you, or to feel the tension in your neck and shoulders before that big presentation at work. But our response to fear is often disproportionate to what is causing fear. The truth is that our minds spend more time wrestling with the many forms of fear they create than they do connecting in a loving way of life. Making love connections with the sacred, with each other, and within ourselves is the great aim of nearly all the world's religions. It's that perfect love that casts out fear. Most of our fears present no real threat or danger. They are mostly mental events with no objective facts to support them. My son David was lost, but he wasn't abducted. And my calling to the ministry or even the death of God did not impact my son's mortality. We need to retrain our minds so that they see more options than just fight or flight when we encounter fear love's opposition to fear opens to us new possibilities when we're afraid psychologist Richard Schaub co-founder of the New York Psychosynthesis Institute shared his finding on fears he said when you follow fear down to its deepest roots you always come out on the other side in a field of love Simply put, we discovered that the origin of fear is the love of life. It is our desire to live and to live well which evokes fear. For as far as we know, we are the only creatures who know we will die while we're still alive. The poet Wendell Berry aptly describes this ever-present state as the forethought of grief. The knowledge we have of our own mortality creates the fearful pressure to be perfect and not make any mistakes in our lives, lest our imperfect choices lead to our premature demise. This fear takes on corporate connotations when anxious nations go to war or arrogant businesses believe they are too big to fail. This is what led the late Forest Church to determine, and I've said this before, his definition of religion. Religion is the human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. This is the preacher's way of articulating the psychologist's finding that the origin of fear is the love of life. Many of us look to religious faith for help in transcending our fear of the ultimate reality of death, as well as the many little deaths in life that inch us closer to the grave that is surely ours we begin to draw on spiritual resources the moment we acknowledge that fear is more than just a feeling. It's a fact. To be human is to be vulnerable. To be spiritual is to experience our own vulnerability as a gift rather than a curse, as a gateway to spiritual growth and a better life. Now, the word vulnerable comes from the Latin vulnus, which translates as wound or susceptible to wounding. We, what may first be experienced is a feeling. The nervousness and insecurity of being exposed to risk soon becomes a fact of life once we realize that we are not alone in our susceptibility to wounding. Instead, it is the state we all live in, rich or poor, powerful or weak, religious or secular, no one gets a pass. Our vulnerability is the result of the transitory nature of our lives. Fear arises when we confuse the transitory with the permanent. Religion offers its eternal truths as guideposts in an ever-changing world that we are all vulnerable connects us to each other and provides a key to overcoming fear. Now, this is nothing new, nothing new under the sun. Buddhists call it the truth of impermanence. Philosophers in both Eastern and Western traditions know it as the human condition. Freud called it our helplessness, Modern psychology does label this the fight or flight instinct, a universal human response to fear and its triggers. Aaron Beck, the founder of Cognitive Therapy, explains, in understanding anxiety, we should think of the symptoms not as foreign experiences, but as expressions of basic primal functions. The fact that we will die, the root cause of all our lived fears, is the function of our having been born. It too connects us to each other and provides a key to overcoming fear. We move closer to the end of fear in our lives when we turn, our, turn toward our vulnerability rather than run away from it or seek to minimize it. The psychologist Richard Schaub says he tried to live a detached life, loving less, risking less, putting up walls to escape the pain of his own vulnerability. Schaub's breakthrough came as he began trying something new. He writes Each time I felt the force of vulnerability and allowed myself to stay with it instead of escaping into detachment. I felt more human, more soulful, more real. I was beginning to see that vulnerability was a conduit to a better life. The result, he says, was that the losses in his life have felt more painful and more precious at the same time. Soon after, Shab came up with an exercise to help others experience the force of vulnerability and harness it for good. And it is one that has helped me. It begins by taking a walk around the block, preferably one teeming with life. As you walk, take a look at the facers of passers-by and see their lives as vulnerable and temporary, or as Shab phrases it, a soul briefly here. It's likely, at first, that you'll be distracted, catching your own reflection in store windows, reading signs, or staying vigilant. Your fight-or-flight instinct will try to keep vulnerability at bay, your own as well as others. Just keep at it. And remember that everyone and everything is temporary, just as you are. Everyone you pass, whether walking with confidence or cowering in fear, is dealing with their own vulnerability, just as you are. The spiritual principle at play here is perhaps best paraphrased as do unto others for they are you. By seeing those you meet as you walk with the eyes of vulnerability, you soon realize that the distinctions we insist to make among people, all the labels, classifications, and categories that keep us separate and apart are thin and ephemeral. We're all coping with fear, with the dual reality of being alive and having to die. That's religion's good news. In life and death, you are not alone. When fear strikes and we turn inward, we are telling ourselves that we are inadequate to meet life's challenges, alone in our woundedness and desperate for despair. It is our solitary inner experience of fear that makes each of us feel separate and alone. When we make love our greatest aim, when we do unto others because they are us, when we are convinced that there are no exceptions to the vulnerability we all share, we begin to move from fear to faith. I can be set free from my isolating individual fears, and so can you. Every time you and I transform our usual separate selves into a connection with others, we enter into the oneness of humanity, the interconnected web of existence, and the emotion of this oneness is love. You need not be perfect to encounter the perfect love that casts out fear. In fact, you'll only recognize it because of your own imperfections, as you make love connections with other fallible people. Instead, as Marcus Aurelius reminded us, we replace the fear of life with the faith of life, by comprehending the scale of the world, by contemplating infinite time, by thinking about our birth and death, the infinite time before death, the equally unbounded time that follows. My friends, we have a long time to get it right. And every time we learn from what we go through in life, we move closer to the end of fear. Acknowledge that fear is a fact and not just a feeling. Turn toward vulnerability with affection. Experience the oneness of life by accepting its transitory nature. And in the end, to paraphrase Dante, we will be able to let go in our time of dying because we have done so in our time of living to the glory of life.